This is not the media. This is hell. Today, our healthcare system has failed us. The market does not work when it comes to providing the medical care we need as people are still dying from debt and bankruptcy and an inability to afford needed medicines and procedures. We are seen as a patient, a victim who is subordinate to the medical system within which we submit ourselves and do as we are told, even when we don't understand what is wrong with us or how we are to be cured. But what if we could reimagine healthcare into something that wasn't so authoritarian and a bit more democratic? How would healthcare change if we approached it with the creativity of art? What would happen if we had an open communication between medical experts and those they serve so we all better understand public health? And what if all our doctors got together and instead of seeing us as some two-dimensional commodity to be profited from in market medicine, we were seen in our entirety in three dimensions and understood at every level, both emotional and physical, as well as our entire family history. We'll discuss what a new relationship with health care can look like when we have the return of feminist economist, artist, and activist Cassie Thornton, author of The Hologram, Feminist Peer-to-Peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future. Cassie is currently the co-director of the Reimagining Value Action Lab in Thunder Bay, Ontario, an art and social center at Lakehead University in Canada. Cassie was on back in June 2016 with Max Haven, her co-director at the Reimagining Value Lab, and Brianne Bolin as part of the Undercommoning Collective, who had recently published the letter Undercommoning Within, Against, and Beyond the University as such at Roar Magazine. And they were in studio with us back in 2016 up at WNUR Studios when we were allowed to enter those studios or that building or get our mail. Find out more about the lab by following them on Twitter at Reimagine Value and find out more from Cassie at Feminist Econ DEPT, Feminist Economics Department. Putting people before profit since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. You are listening to completely listener-supported radio, live stream, podcast, whatever this is right now. If you want to help us out with our horrible business model, go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on support where you can find all the ways in which you can support This Is Hell. There's plenty of ways to do just that, including subscribing to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which we stream live every Friday morning at 10 Chicago time with a new monologue from me and a classic interview that is unavailable anywhere else online. Soon, we hope all our entire archive of shows will be online, but in order to do that, we have to pay programmers, which is one of the many reasons we want to thank you for your support. Thanks for going to thisishell.com and clicking on support goes out to Sean, who writes, No need to send anything unless you have some adrenochrome, which was the winning answer to last week's question from hell. What cure for COVID do they not want you to know about? And if you don't know what adrenochrome is, eh, basically it's the beatniks DMT. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing, as always, is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, so, where do you see yourself in five years? (laughs) So, where do you see yourself in five years? Are you uh, HR this week? (laughs) Where do you see yourself in five years? I had somebody ask me that during uh, an interview, a job interview, to be a dishwasher. I said, where do you see yourself 
in five years. Uh, washing nicer dishes in another <laughs> restaurant. I said, not working here. And I, they, they said that it was not <laughs> the correct answer. I, I'm really proud that 100% of the people who work on This Is Hell Daily uh, have had jobs as dishwashers. <laughs> <laughs> the listener with our favorite answer to this week's question from Alan Wednesday, This Is Hell Medical Face Mask. You can see the mask right now. Even order your own when you go to thisishell.com and click on support to get to our swag page. And not only do we have three different kinds of This Is Hell face masks right now. There's a black one. There's a white one with a black border. There's just a white one. The black one looks really very cool and very appropriate for the plague. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner after Jeff Dorchin delivers his moment of truth. This week, Jeff loads 16 tons. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from Hell following our guest. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. We want... I need a sip of water. Or coffee, I mean. We want you to send us your thoughts on the show, suggestions for guests or topics, criticism, both constructive and destructive. And if, if you do, we will likely read your writing on air. You can email us, direct message us via Twitter, or use Facebook Messenger. And God, I hate saying the words Twitter and Facebook because it feels like I'm promoting those social media platforms, and I'm not. I hate them both. John sent an email writing, Hey Chuck, hope things are well. Just wanted to send a quick email to tell you that your interview with Gerald Horn two weeks ago on slavery in the Americas during the 16th century was really interesting. That interview fit nicely, question mark, with your interview with Vincent Brown in January on slavery in Haiti. Thanks, John. I think those are two of the very best interviews we've featured on the show so far this year. Vincent Brown's book, Tacky's Revolt, blew me away. And you can hear uh, both those conversations, as well as all of our conversations with Gerald Horn at thisishell.com. Again, look for the Vincent Brown interview and the Gerald Horn interview that we've done this year. John continues, the extent of slavery and its impacts are so much more insidious than most people realize. I've learned a lot from those interviews. I listened with empathy with your recent issues of your building. For those who may not have heard, the building where I live is slowly falling apart around us during the pandemic. Joe and John has sympathy. We've gone through some of the same issues at our building. However, you have not truly experienced communal living until you have been accused of misappropriating condo funds. Those are good times. Yes, John, we have gone through those good times when my girliest condo president had to bust the former condo president for embezzling. Yes, community living is just awesome. John ends with drag about Carrie's lounge having to close again, but hey, I've been wearing my mask. Take care, John. Thanks for the email, John. Yeah, it's a drag about Carrie's, but the mayor should never have allowed the bars and restaurants to reopen indoor seating as soon as she did. I get it. She was probably feeling intense pressure from business as well as workers who wanted to get back to their jobs and make money. But we really needed her to be the tough mom she said she is, the kind who doesn't yell at annoying kids in the back seat, but instead tells them to walk home. I just wish she could have been as tough on business as she was on those fictional backseat brats of hers. Daniel also sent an email writing, You guys continue to kill it. Thanks so much for your consistency, and congrats on the new format. Guest suggestion, 
Paul Freimer, author of the recent Salon article, Why Labor Unions Make People Less Racist, as well as an awesome book from 2017. Thanks, David. No, thank you, David. The article David links to starts, compared to non-union workers, union members have higher wages and smaller gender and racial wage disparities. Now, a new research paper finds that stronger labor unions have an anti-racist side effect. White union members feel less racial resentment against blacks than their non-union counterparts. The paper published in the American Journal of Political Science called Labor Unions and White Racial Politics was written by professors Paul Freimer of Princeton University and Jay. Jacob Grumbach of the University of Washington. They write, union membership reduces racial resentment toward African Americans. The reason they believe is partly because unions, union leaders, quote, need to recruit workers of color in order to achieve majority memberships in racially diversifying labor sectors, and therefore, quote, have ideological and strategic incentives to mitigate racial resentment among the rank and file in pursuit of organizational maintenance and growth. More union, less racism. No wonder Wall Street and the far right hate unions. They undermine the racism they want to exploit for profit. Now it all, all, it all makes sense. We'll have more listener feedback after our guest, including emails we received from a collective in Ireland that is fascinating, that needs your support, as well as another email from our friend Seneta in Dakar, Senegal. Coming up, a completely new democratic way of considering health care. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what, what is the email again? <laughs> What's the question from hell again, Alex? The question is, uh, so where do you see yourself in five years? That's what it is. I can't read my own handwriting. Where do you see yourself in five years? We'll also have more listener feedback, as I was saying. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can get right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Let me put that over there and not lose it. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. If there's one thing the pandemic has revealed to the world, it's that capitalist health care does not provide the medical services we need in a time of crisis. Greece learned the same thing years earlier when their economy collapsed, but they reacted with a new way of approaching their relationship with health care through mutual aid here to introduce us to new ways in considering ourselves and our relationship with medicine. Feminist, economist, artist, and activist Cassie Thornton is author of The Hologram, Feminist Peer-to-Peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Cassie. Thank you so much for having me. Cassie was on back in June 2016 with Max Haven, her co-director at the Reimagining Value Lab, and Brianne Bolin as part of the Undercommoning Collective, who had recently published the letter, Undercommoning Within, Against, and Beyond the University as Such. And you can hear that interview by searching on Cassie's name when you go to thisishell.com. A feminist economist is, according to your bio for your book, a title that frames your work as that of a social scientist actively preparing for the economics of a future society that produces health and life without the tools that reproduce oppression. How do you see that oppression reproduced in healthcare? In so many ways. Um, I guess I've been really focused on our ability or maybe our inability and focus on our, um, our, our sense that we need medical care that comes from authorities and experts 
when often those authorities and experts are wrong or are commissioned by pharmaceutical companies. Um, and yeah, I guess there's a sense that our medical system um, should work for everyone. And when I say our medical system, I'm now living in Canada, um, and I, though I'm American, um, like our medical systems, whether they are uh, socialized or whether they are run on a market uh, the way it is in the U.S., um, they're all still predicated on profit and they reproduce all forms of oppression, including racism, obviously, ageism, sexism. Um, so I think it's the perfect time to imagine new ways to approach long-term health care, especially uh, new ways that kind of consider prevention and uh, sort of longer game than just sort of fixing what's broken at the moment when it breaks, when, especially when everything's breaking. You write that when healthcare is taken out of the exclusive clutches of jealous experts, medicine can become cooperatively creative and can actually produce multiple forms of mutually reinforcing health, physical, emotional, social, communal, and relational. In case anyone is jumping to drastic conclusions here, and I know that you can imagine the conclusions they're jumping to, do you mean doctors are not assisting in their patients' medical decisions, that doctors are no longer doctors, that anyone can pursue any healthcare choice without any concern for public health? health or anyone's public safety, just in case people are jumping to massive conclusions about what you're trying to do here? No, not at all. In fact, um, we believe that this project called The Hologram um, is a peer-to-peer support network that exists underneath other forms of care. Um, So the hope is that if you have support from your peers, you can navigate the really complicated Um, and hierarchical medical system to get what you need from it. Um, And in no way do we try to replace that. Um, But we also believe that um, a a better form of long-term care is necessary and possible. Um, And so uh, a part of the project is really about uh, like navigating what we have to navigate now as things are um, within the medical system as we demand something much better in the future. So, uh, Max Haven, the co-director where you are at uh, Lakeside College, Lakehead University in Ontario, uh, he writes that the hologram's deceptive simplicity is a delivery vehicle for a radical vision of a different world, teaching its participants to become post-capitalist animals and helping them grow the strength, skills, and solidarity for the revolutionary struggles Cassie Thornton hopes will soon transform the world. This is from the introduction to your book. How, how would the hologram contribute to us becoming, as Max calls it, uh, post-capitalist animals? <laughs> well, um, so just a little summary of how it works or what it is, is that it is um, it's a peer-to-peer health model. And basically it, it, ha- it works in a way where you have one person receiving like attention and care from three people. Um, that person we call the hologram and the three people are called a triangle. And those people basically set up a situation where they meet, say, like every season. And they make a commitment to, say, meet every season for about, you know, two hours. And those three people ask questions of the hologram that focus on physical, mental, emotional, and social health. And so um, over time, they really get to know the hologram. 
And uh, so they become a kind of like living medical record for that person. And then the idea is that over time, um, each of those people in the triangle who are giving the care end up setting up their own holograms. So they also are receiving the same care that they're giving, but receiving it from different people. Um, so that is the simple social practice that Max is mentioning. And, um, but it's, of course, not simple, right? Because uh, it's pretty hard to imagine asking for the commitment of three people to attend to your, to your needs for maybe a year or however long you guys decide to commit. I think that's very overwhelming in itself. And then, um, I mean, we've really, I think, being um, immersed in a capitalist society for, our, uh, for generations now, um, we have learned not to trust each other. Um, and a lot of times when we need help most, um, we're tricked, especially in the United States, when we're offered help, often it comes with a really high interest rate or it comes um, as a way to make profit and not really to offer care. And so I think that um, ex participating in the hologram just creates a bunch of opportunities to practice different social relations than we're really trained to have in capitalism. Um, and some of those relationships, you know, it means like trusting people, trusting that you can ask for help and that's okay, that all people need support um, and that that's not a shameful thing and it doesn't mean that you're weak. Um, and then participating in a, pro a process that takes time and doesn't have any specific results in mind. There's no goal. It's just a process that never ends. And I feel like that is something that we're not really... Uh, encouraged to do, nor do we have a chance to sort of practice that. Um, and then you're receiving care from someone who's not just a friend anymore because it's a formal relationship, but it's also not a doctor. It's not a therapist. So it's creating an opportunity to have a different type of relationship. Maybe, maybe you know, you, it's with your friends or family members, but now there's a sort of formal agreement that at a certain time and place, we're going to act differently and we're going to care for each other and that we're not acting as, as experts or advisors, but yet we're, we're doing this other thing. And the last thing I would say is just that there's a chance within the project to experience a different form of recipro reciprocity, because I think we're super trained to want to receive care from people who we can pay or from people who there's like a really clean one-to-one -one arrangement with. So we know that they're going to be compensated. Say you see a therapist, you're going to pay them, for their hour of time or, or your insurance is going to pay them and you know they're getting something back for their time listening to you. But in the hologram, that's not how it works. It's not a one-to-one -one thing. And you, you, don't, you don't get to pay back the people that pay attention to, or that care for you in the same way that they're, you don't give them, a, there's not a tit-for-tat kind of one-to-one -one exchange that you receive care from somebody and then you turn around and give that to someone else. And so it's just like there's all these opportunities within the project um, to sort of expand our experience with each other outside of what is generally allowed within capitalist relations. And I think that actually the biggest thing, though, within all of it is that um, and it relates to your question of what, where do you see yourself in five years? Um, you know, there's a way where we're really limited in our thinking about the future. And obviously there's a million emergencies that face us in every direction. But I think honestly, for a long time, because of the precarity of our jobs and lives and our housing and our healthcare, like it's been really hard to imagine the future for a long time. And for more people, for some people more than others. Um, but 
but I think in, within the project, it gives you the opportunity to make a commitment to a group of people for as long as you want. So what if you made a plan for five years or for 10 years and you knew that you were going to be meeting every three months until then? It's not a big commitment, but it does mean that there is something that you can know about the future and that can actually be like good and generative and um, something that you want rather than something, you know, I think a lot of the things that we can predict that are ha- going to be happening related to climate change and the growth of different corporations and the, what's happening to many of our governments um, with the right. But I think that there's a lot of stuff we can predict that's not, that's pretty negative, but I think within this project, we do have the opportunity to make a plan that outlasts some of those other things. And it's a social plan and it uses stuff we already have. So it really doesn't participate in a lot of the structures um, of time that we are kind of managed by at the moment. And I want to talk about that imagination, the impact that capitalism, not just neoliberalism, but capitalism in general, has on imagination, as well as how you approach this as a work of art. But you, as you point out in your writing, you understand that this is a global healthcare crisis facing a global pandemic. The hologram seemed small in response and that four people make up a hologram, a triangle, and the hologram who will be treated. How can such a small, even local response address a global health care crisis with austerity programs cutting health care budgets as they are? I mean, I think that the project works in two ways. And um, one way is that it's an idea. It's a representation of a different way of organizing labor and of organizing care that, um, you know, it moves virally and it teaches as it grows. Um, So I think that for one thing, it works as a story. And I like to call the project, you know, 50% parafiction and parafiction is just, it's like a fiction that you tell until you make it real. Like you, you pretend it's real until it is real. And I think that, the hologram, if we try to imagine it as like a worldwide network of people that are sort of rhythmically listening to each other and taking care of each other, and that that work is all sort of like virally distributed and, uh, you know, giving people these sort of like opportunities to have these different anti-capitalist experiences. Um, I think it just represents for a lot of people, just like a a pure possibility. Like it's it's actually something that we can imagine using stuff we have that the future could be maybe not as bad or not as mysterious as it seems. And so I think for a lot of people, it can just be that it can just actually be an idea and a representation that something is possible. And then I think uh, in a much more sort of pragmatic way, I think that the project can scale and can be useful for a lot of people in a lot of different situations. Um, I mean, what if um, when we decide that incarceration is not working for our society, what if, or even now as we're, because of of COVID, we're releasing tons and tons of people from prison. What if those people had three people that they chose that were gonna focus on them and help them as they try to reclaim their lives. And those three people that are giving support also have three people supporting them. Um, I feel like this way of distributing care and labor 
means that a lot of what we do when we make changes can be much more sustainable. And because a lot of what we're asking for right now is about making really big changes to big institutions and systems that we've never, we've never existed without um, in, in our, in our memories, um, we like, we need something that can help us in transition. And I feel like this practice creates a lot of stability within individuals and within groups and uh, it teaches as it grows. So it, it constantly, it can, it has the capacity to bring new people in who are not necessarily comfortable doing sort of long-term care work. Um, so I do think that it is a possible, one possible solution for how to kind of institute change that happens on an individual level and then on a group level and potentially on a collective level. And there's projects that are not so different from this happening, for example, in London with a project called Talk for Health, where basically it's a kind of protocol for how to get together with strangers and do peer-to-peer counseling without experts. And that project got hired on by the NHS as a project that would not replace other care, but would sort of offer another place for people to go when they really needed help but couldn't access different forms of therapy that they needed. Um, And, you know, that can be seen as a sort of a replacement for other forms of care that should be provided by the government. But um, I think it is also a move in a really interesting direction. And I am not actually opposed um, to, to seeing this project become something that is brought into institutions and, uh, and city governments, if it meant that that was it came with an acknowledgement that um, there's care that is needed before, during, and after a crisis, before, during, and after a surgery, and that it's a part it needs to be a part of everyone's life all the time. And um, you know, I I think that it I I, I am I'm a believer that like actually uh, like if if a bunch of people have a kind of methodology to work with that um i don't know some something could shift yeah i would hope so uh you uh in 2019 you began a collaboration with further field gallery in london uh, uh making your idea of the hologram into a kind of installation an art installation how is the hologram displayed as a piece of interventionist artwork as an as an art installation what is the message of the hologram? Because I think that would give an insight as to what the hologram means for people. Mm-hmm. I mean, we haven't actually installed it as an installation that is visible yet. Um, for years, I, I'm, an, I'm a practicing artist and I, ha- I have exhibitions in small galleries and museums and stuff all the time. And um, I began to work with it as something that we could do kind of in lieu of payment. So I had been working on the project and needed people to actually try it out. So sometimes I'd be in a show and I would say like, you can't really pay me very much because, you know, you're a nonprofit gallery and barely surviving, but maybe in ex- in, instead of paying me, we could work on this project together. And maybe some of your workers, the director of your gallery, the, your curator, maybe we could try it together and you do it for the duration of the exhibition and nobody needs to necessarily see it, but it's, it's work that's happening underneath the the show. Um, I think what we're working towards now is, I mean, I, I, I believe that it's a really big social sculpture. 
uh, as it is now. And we do um, lots of online workshops and we're going to be running a our second course this September where about 30 people uh, like learn and practice the hologram and establish holograms for themselves. Um, and it's a very performative, artistic, but also very serious uh, experiment in care. Um, and then I think, you know, in, in the future, when things open up, there probably will be exhibitions. The thing that we had proposed, which, you know, I don't know that it is appropriate anymore, was um, that next year, or I think it's actually in about a year and a half, we had proposed that inside of a park in London where in Finsbury Park in London, where Furtherfield Gallery is located, which is like a very kind of mixed working class area with a lot of migrant populations from a lot of different places, um, a really international, interesting place. We were planning to put a, a hospital bed in the, in the park and um, with a phone and a nurse, and that when you sat down on the phone, there would be three people on the other side, and they would have a conversation with you about how you're doing and one person would ask you questions about how you you are physically and one person would ask you questions about how you are mentally and emotionally and one person would ask you questions about how are you socially and that it would be this sort of very like small performance of what that type of conversation might be like and uh and it would happen in public and I think that there's there's something really important about that that like uh get receiving care and being vulnerable is a part, it's, it's okay to be, it's okay to be like that in public. That's a part of the world and it doesn't need to be hidden or made too precious. Um, it's something that we all need. I, I mean, I think that there's a, there's a lot to develop in terms of how it exists in the art project. But I think a really important part of the whole, the larger project is that I am an artist. And this is a project that I've been working on with many collaborators over the last four years. Um, and right now my name is on it and I am the kind of steward of the project. But what all I really want is for it to become a decentralized practice where I can fade away and the project lives on and maybe it'll exist. You know, AA is very problematic, um, but there's lots of projects like AA that move virally between people that have a very, like a very clear protocol for how they can happen and then people can take them and use them exactly how they want to, um, and they can they can transform them as they want, um, and the, the the project could live on in that way um, without it necessarily always being known as mainly an art project, but maybe more becoming just a sort of like practice that people use uh, and know about. You write that I believe that art should be democratized in the art world in all its precariousness. precariousness should be abolished. What do you mean by the art world that you want to destroy or abolish? And does abolishing the art world mean the abolition of art, the end of art? Because I want to make sure people understand, as you know, from an artist's perspective, the difference between what is art and what is the art world. Sure. Um, I mean, so being an artist, I feel like, is a title that is given to people or chosen by people that often don't want to or can't participate in the sort of heteronormative, super competitive capitalist art world. Uh, or I'm sorry, that can't participate in the uh, hypernormative capitalist working world. And so um, it's, 
it's like a label for, for a certain type of malcontent that's also creative about it, um, who maybe doesn't want to get a job and doesn't want to participate in reality and has other ideas about how to do things. The art world is a place where, for the for in a, in a, in a big way, um, art is commodified and bought and sold. And there are many, many art worlds. Um, and it's important to say that, and there are radical art worlds and we love them and they're very important. And it's like one of the only places in society left where people can have identities that are outside of their work, um, and outside of their image and money. Um, but in a large way, the, the art world is dominated by big corporate money and sponsor sponsorships. It's super hierarchical. It's definitely still run by white, powerful men. And, um, you know, even when it becomes popular to include people of color and queer people and people with disabilities, I think it's for the, for in a very big way, in a very long-term way, it has a long-term commitment to power and money and, um, to keeping those things, uh, powerful. And so I think that all I mean when I say that I would like to abolish the art world is that actually I think everyone has the potential to be creative. Everyone should have time and space to make what they want to see in their world and to feel like, um, their opinion and their creativity and their ideas matter. There's so many traditions throughout the world, especially where I live in Canada, um, working with lots of Anishinaabe artists. I got it. I, I, I realized that, um, you know, there are cultures where art is not something that you identify with as a job, but it's actually just something that everyone does. And it's a regular part of life that's woven into everything you do. And I, that's much closer to what I would imagine uh, we could have in a sort of post-capitalist art world. But yeah, I really, I think that um, the way that academia, the way that uh, auction houses like Sotheby's and big corporate galleries work, the way that museums interface with companies like BP, um, the way that art is used to gentrify cities, it, and the way that art, the art world still is a really racist, patriarchal place, I just think, you know, get rid of it. We are speaking with feminist economist, artist, and activist Cassie Thornton, author of The Hologram Feminist, Peer-to-Peer -peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future. You write that in January 2017, you visited several solidarity clinics in Greece that serve not only Greeks who have been abandoned and punished by international debt markets, but also refugees who have become trapped in the country thanks to the closing of Europe's borders to them. The solidarity clinic movement rose to prominence during the anti-austerity Indignados uprisings of 2010 and 2011, and you point out that after spending years researching and organizing around personal debt and its effect on collective and individual psychological, behavioral, social, and emotional life, I began to become curious about the ways that public debts, like the one that encumbered Greece, work and how people internalize and live with those debts. What do you mean by public debts, and how do we internalize and learn to live with those debts? Mm -hmm. um, I mean... Uh, one, I spent a bit of time on one particular public debt local to you, which is um, the Chicago Public Schools. And I think that's one example of so, so many. Um, but uh, in 2016, I believe, I was in Chicago um, and I met with lots and lots of people in Chicago who had some sort of affiliation with the Chicago Public School System as 
it was wavering on bankruptcy. And, um, you know, at that time, the, well, for a long time, in Chicago public schools, 90% of the children that attend public schools, 90% or nine out of 10 kids are black. And so uh, declaring the public schools bankrupt or almost bankrupt just seemed so, uh, so overtly racist, but it was not able to be called that way. And so often um, the way that uh, like collective debts, which, you know, the, the school is a collect, the school's debt is a collective debt because it's not, it doesn't belong to one person. It belongs to a group of people. Um, so often what's happening behind the scenes is you know, even when we're talking about supporting social goods like school and medical care, um, it's organized by profit, by banks behind the scenes. And so um, particularly with the Chicago public schools, I did a project where I interviewed people, um, bankers, uh, the bankers that like that actually um, like give loans to the Chicago public schools, the the teachers that work there, people in the the people that work in the union, kids that go to the schools, principals. I interviewed them and I did um, visualizations with them where I'd have them imagine the debt of the public school as like an image. And so I'd sort of hypnotize them and get them to talk to me about it while we were sitting somewhere in the schools and. Um, you know, what, what most people saw was like, like the schools crumbling, like the buildings falling apart. Um, and you know, like the sort of, there was a sort of sense of like, like collective mourning, but like also a kind of powerlessness because in a weird way, like when we get to talk about debts, like it feels like something too complicated for regular people to understand or intervene with. Um, and it creates like a lot of guilt or it creates a sense of like sort of like um, I guess just a collective impossibility. It really freezes things a lot. And so um, I mean, the Chicago public schools and the, the, the labor union were amazing in how they responded and how they kind of, I think at different times have recovered from the debt there. Um, but it takes collective action where in, when we talk about personal debt, um, a lot of people, you know, or when we talk about debt, often in the United States, we're talking about personal debt um, where it belongs to one person and it's one person's responsibility or one person's failure, which, you know, I, I disagree with that. I think that all debt, all, uh, all most debts are odious debts and all debts, all financial debts are sort of a part of a collective problem, uh, a political problem. Um, but I just became much more interested in collective debts, sovereign debts, municipal debts, um, because of the way that they basically uh, reproduce power relationships. And so if the city of Chicago uh, really and Rahm Emanuel are really interested in money and are like actually quite racist, they can enact that by the debts that they pass on to institutions that serve mostly racialized and poor people. Um, yeah, so I think that there's a way that uh, living with living mired in debt, both collective and personal debt, for you know, for most of our, for most adults' lives, and for for many kids that have grown up, you know, since the 2008 financial crisis, who have families that have been mired in debt following the, the housing crisis, um, it's just a way of life. But it's also a way of life that makes it really hard to to trust people, to trust institutions. Um, and and it's super individualizing. Like when you when you when you deal with the debt crisis um, on whatever level, it means that you don't have 
what you need and let life just keeps getting shittier as interest rates pile, as interest goes up and the payments go uh, pile up. So I think that like, you know, the really interesting thing about playing with how we talk about debt and uh, making that a part of a conversation about health is just that we begin to see that it's a, it's a, it's a systemic problem that most of us are dealing with. Um, So within the hologram, like we talk about uh, financial health within like underneath what is like sort of social health. So when you're a hologram, you have three people asking you questions about your health. And, you know, the person that's asking you questions about social problems is also asking you about your relationship to larger systems, um, to how you get your health care, but also just like how you get your food. Who do you interact with at work? Um, where does your money come from and how do you relate to larger systems? And I think it's really important to admit that the financial conditions around us, whether whether we're in a country with a ton of sovereign debt and uh, we're, um, you know, we're, we are losing our access to healthcare because of it or, or because we have personal debt because we have a student loan or whatever it is. Um, I think opening it up as a part of a conversation about like what makes a healthy a healthy person's life and a healthy society is really important. You write that our culture bases dignity on our ability to pay for services. It's a culture that created Trump and that also created each of us, and one that loads regular people with so much debt for housing, health care, education, transportation, and public services that it breeds numbness, obedience, isolation, isolation, and narcissism. I thought we were filled with numbness, obedience, isolation, and narcissism because of Twitter or video games or whatever the mainstream establishment media says is the problem of the time. What does it say to you about the media, about conventional wisdom, about public debate, when we blame these kinds of problems that we have, numbness, obedience, isolation, narcissism, on things like social media or video games, and not see that they are stemming from, as you point out, debt? I think debt is one really good way to look at it. I mean, I think we can also talk about, um, like, carceralism and, um, you know, all different forms of of oppression that are right there alongside that, like, you know, racism and colonialism, patriarchy. But I guess I feel like, um, you know, that we wouldn't, the, the media industry wouldn't be as powerful if we weren't like all so tired, so busy and so scared trying to pay our bills. I mean, I think that the, for so many of us, like, especially now, but it's been, it's been, I've been saying especially now for my entire adult life, but especially now, I think we um, are at a point where, like, everyone is at a financial tipping point. Like, we, we might be facing really scary health and environmental emergencies, but if we can't pay rent and we can't afford food and we can't go to the doctor, like, how are we going to... Uh, kind of have the, the fortitude to stop giant corporations from controlling the media. Um, how are we going to even know what to care about besides our own survival? And I just feel like uh, so many of us are like locked inside of a ritual of bare survival that it's just, it's really hard to have like independent thoughts. And I mean, I, I've had people talk to me over the years about like people who have said that, like, like having ideas, or have it like doing critical thinking is a privilege. And I think 
honestly, in our society, because uh, there's, it's so unstable and so, and, and like, like paying our bills and uh, maintaining a livelihood is so precarious. Uh, having the brain space to think critically and to feel like a, a part of, like an important, not even an important part of society, just to feel a part of your society and to feel like you have some agency is a privilege because most people just don't have the time and energy to do it. And I think it's a really interesting moment because of the pandemic, because a bunch of people, whether they're surviving financially or not, all of a sudden had a lot of free time um, because they lost their jobs or because they were on furlough or because they were laid off because they were too sick to go outside. Um, So all of a sudden we have a whole lot of people with a bunch of uh, time and attention to actually pay attention to what's happening in the media, revealing that what the media is doing sucks for the most part, minus this is hell and a couple of other, <laughs> uh, you know, great outlets. Like, I think that in a, in a, in a very, very big way, um, like I think people got to see like how bad things are. And they, a lot of them showed up outside at the rallies for George Floyd. Um, and so I, I don't know, I guess, I don't know what else to say about it, but I just think that there's like, there's a big, uh, there's a big underlying financial landscape that's been uh, creating a really unstable living ground for most of us. And so then when, when it comes to um, dismantling, you know, powerful uh, media moguls, like who can do that if they're just not making it? All right, Cassie, it's up to you. One or two more questions. We're already at 45. Uh, whatever you want. All right. I'll... If they're good questions, we'll do them. <laughs> well, I can't guarantee that. So <laughs> you, you, uh, you also mentioned the integrative model based on a different idea of health, authority, care, and expertise. In this model, the incomer, instead of patient, meets with three health practitioners at the same time on their first 90-minute visit. This is within the Greek mutual aid system. A general physician, a psychotherapist, and a, a social worker, or if no social worker is available, a non-practitioner volunteer. The social worker or volunteer leads the incomer through a survey called a health card or of optional questions covering their mental, emotional, and physical health, but also their broader situation, including their family life, living conditions, work, nutrition, sleep patterns, all are considered important aspects of health in a broad, holistic sense. They are trying to make a hologram of every person, a clear, three-dimensional image of health. If we do not see ourselves as a hologram now, as a clear, three-dimensional image of health, why does capitalism make us see ourselves and the human body as something else, say two dimensions? What are the mechanisms within capitalism that take away our understanding of our whole selves. Hmm. I mean, I think there's just so many, but I think that the thing that surprises me the most is not the separation between like mind and body or um, it's more like the separation between people and the sense that like we that we are a part of a kind of species, a society, a city, um, and that like that information seems really inaccessible. And I think like most of my life and art practice has been trying to understand like how that form of individualism came to be. And it's no surprise that if you feel like disconnected from other people and you can't actually see the other in all of their complexity because of uh, a myriad of reasons that we can go into. Like 
it makes it much harder to sort of see yourself. And I think that like in a funny way, the attention economy being us being ruled by social media um, has exacerbated problems that have existed for a long time, wherein we are constantly trying to perfect ourselves so that we can compete to live um, and to, to compete in a market and to compete uh, to, to prove our own value. Um, but where in that situation, I think we're so um, we're so overburdened by information about ourselves and about and from from uh, the media about like that we are so overloaded with information, basically, that uh, we, in a sort of move towards self-preservation, I think, sort of begin to see other people as obstacles um, to us surviving, to us, uh, like, getting what we need to live. And I think that, like, the, the less, the more estranged we are, the more alienated we are from other people, um, the harder it is to see ourselves as connected to those people and the harder it is to see ourselves in other people. And I think one of the, one of the ways that we learn is by about ourselves is by really um, understanding other people's stories. But if those people are in a weird way, have been turned by our brains into sort of like, like obstacles in a race towards some sort of idea of success or survival. um, Yeah. I think we just get really alienated from a sense of like what it is to be a person, what it is to be a whole person. And I think the really interesting thing about the hologram project that I've witnessed for myself, I, I do the hologram as well is um, just that like, if you're, if you're in a conversation and you're talking about actually like a health procedure, like I had been in the hospital and needed like advice from my hologram and they're like, the first question is like, like what's happening in your body. And then the next question is like, what happened in in the moments before the emergency? Like what other stuff was going on in your life that led to the fact that like you had a problem that manifested in your body. And then, you know, I end up talking about like my mother or whatever and having a phone call with my mother. And then, you know, I just think that there's a way that like all these different parts of us are connected, not maybe not necessarily in ways that are really easy for us to understand. Um, But I think like, yeah, there's ways to be able to sort of begin to see how we're, our health is a, is a complete product of the conditions with, with, that we live in. And those conditions are, you know, like super multifaceted. And this is something we've talked about on the show before, about how compartmentalization is very much a part of the commodification that you find within ca- uh, capitalism. And if we instead had a more holistic approach instead of this compartmentalized approach, we'd have a better understanding of the world around us. Uh, first of all, I want to tell you that uh, right now I'm, I was supposed to be camping at Isle Royale. And my plan was to go to Thunder Bay to actually meet you and Max in person. And I can't do that because of the pandemic. Uh, your partner in crime, Max Haven, is one of our very favorite guests to have on the show. I was so glad that you guys joined us in person here in Chicago when you were here back in 2016. Mm-hmm. It is an absolute pleasure to talk to you again, Cassie. I've got one last question for you. Feminist economist, artist, sure. and activist Cassie Thornton is author of The Hologram, Feminist Peer-to-Peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future, and you got to check out this book. You 
you write that you learned in the at when you were at the uh, Greek mutual aid groups. I learned that most of the care given didn't need professional expertise. It was human connection, the provision of empathy and attention within what otherwise feels like an uncaring and alienating world where the crisis becomes lodged in the body. Ninety nine percent of the time, people can help each other. They don't need medical training to provide the preventative care and problem solving that most people need to persist. So that means much of healthcare is just somebody to talk to. When discussing defunding the police, many have said that we do not need police as the first intervening force in every situation. And police say they are being asked to do too much anyway. There's a growing call for a lack of police presence in every emergency situation and filling the roles formerly occupied by social workers. In your opinion, do we need to take current medical practices out of the health care relationship with patients, with incomers? Should the first person you interact with not necessarily be a doctor or a nurse. Huh. Interesting. I mean, um, I do, I, uh, I think there's lots of different um, parts of the medical system that are very integrated into, you know, the, like our larger carceral systems. Um, I think, so I was in the hospital last week in Thunder Bay and um, there was a person that came in that was just like, in so much pain, a young indigenous man. And, um, he was having, uh, pancreatitis and, uh, some paramedics brought him in. There were some police present and they, the, the, the paramedics literally dropped him on a bed, like shook him, like shook him off of the, off of the, the gurney, like a, like a bug. And, um, and he was like moaning in so much pain and he began to be seen by a nurse and the nurse, asked him like what kind of pain he generally lives with and he lives with all kinds of chronic pain. And, uh, you know, he's, he was left alone in the bed for, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes crying before anybody came to talk to him or even bring him a glass of water. His, there was like an alarm going off because his vital signs were not okay. And, uh, I had to go find somebody to just check on the alarms going off in his room as two police sat outside and just checked their phones. And I mean, I don't know what it's like in hospitals. Generally, I know that it's a sort of special time because here in Thunder Bay, like no, no doctors will see any patients. So everyone's going to the ER, but I find that a lot of the systems of care are so uncaring and are so, so carceral and are so interwoven with structures of police and imprisonment. And I guess like, I just, Seeing that, uh, and that, that kind of thing happened throughout the week that I was in the hospital, in and out of the ER, I saw that happen so many times. So I do think that there is a lot of room for different, different types of interventions into medical care. Um, I know, like, going, I was just in the UK, so I did a bunch of research about what was happening in the NHS, and the NHS still has a kind of branch that does a bunch of, like, speculative research. And they've been working for years on a project where they're trying to do... Um, uh, sort of social care. So um, basically they have a project where they bring someone in to do what they call social prescribing. And it's a person who's not a doctor and who's not a therapist um, and who's not necessarily like a specialist in anything more than like helping people navigate systems and find what they need. So like if you have a, like a great amount of depression, but like don't trust therapists, you could see this person and maybe they would be able to recommend you some things that are like a little bit more community-based, like going to join a group, like joining a social movement, 
um, going swimming kind of like help you sort of navigate outside of the medical system a little bit. And then when you need to be connected back to the medical system, they can do that too. Um, so I do think that there are some interesting experiments, but I, and I also think there's a, a great amount of need. Um, at, this morning, we actually just, uh, I was running back here to get this call after we had just done a protest outside of the police station here in Thunder Bay, where we, here we are in the racism and murder capital of Canada. And in 2018, there was a young woman who was 17 years old, indigenous youth, who was put on a gurney and then uh, slapped by a constable. And the, we just found out recently that the constable was never charged and was never held accountable and that that process was completely like kept from the public. So we went outside of the police station today to plant a tree to say that every time the police create more death or more violence, we will reappear to plant another tree until the, the police are replaced by a forest. And it's been really interesting to work with indigenous populations here in Thunder Bay on like what it would mean to begin to take apart some of these carceral systems. And um, I think the, the, the main idea being that like different forms of, of education, um, different forms of care have uh, existed far before any of these carceral systems and can come back again, um, that like a lot of what we are experiencing is actually quite temporary in the scheme of things. And there's, there's ways to, to deal with things with a lot more sort of a collectivity and care with a kind of respect for the land. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm new to it, but I'm, this is what I'm learning. A tree as a permanent natural historical marker of an incident to hold the police responsible. That is just absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for being back on our show, Cassie. Again, the book is The Hologram, Feminist Peer-to-Peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future. You can find out more about the Reimagining Value Lab, which she co-directs, by going on Twitter at Reimagine Value. And you can find out more about Cassie at Feminist Econ D-E-P-T, Feminist Econ Economics Department. Thank you so much for being back on our show. This really is a fascinating book, and I truly appreciate you being back on the show. Oh, thank you so much. All right, take care, Cassie, and say hello to Max for me. Bye. Money is the root of all evil. Capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from Al is, so where, what, where do you find yourself five years from now? Where do you find yourself five years from now? The person with our favorite answer wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can get right now by going to our site, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. There is a white mask with the This Is Hell logo, a white mask with a black outline with the This Is Hell logo, and a black, completely black mask with the This Is Hell logo. By the way, uh... Somebody from, uh, oh, why am I forgetting the name of the band now? Maybe I should save this for tomorrow because I'm not remembering the band. Oh, Urge Overkill. Somebody from uh, the band Urge Overkill got in contact with us, Alex, and he said, I love the new This Is Hell Airlines logo. <laughs> the globe on it. I never put it that thought of it that way as an Airlines logo. And then I saw some old Pan Am logo and I was like, oh yeah, it kind of does look like an Airlines logo. That's the aesthetic we were going for. <laughs> I'm trying to get, uh, I want to get Laddie to Photoshop a jet with, a, you know, like a passenger jet with a This Is Hell logo on the tail so we could have This Is Hell Airlines. Maybe he'll be doing that today. It gives him something to do. You can leave your answer to this week's question out on our Facebook page. Tweet it to us. Email it to us. You got to have your answer in by the end of the show Thursday and after the Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin when we announced this week's winner on the Moment of Truth this week. Jeff, 
loads 16 tons. Alex, how are listeners answering this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in five years, that old uh, HR chestnut? <laughs> Andrew S. says, thinking Bezos every day, thanking Bezos every day that I get to be a serf tied to the land of the merciful and just Lord Zuckerberg and not subject to the cruel and capricious whims of the Duke of Musk. That's something. Dante says, I will have transcended the surly bonds of this mortal coil and will take my place in the next level of the Matrix. This mortal coil, way overrated. Sebastian M. says, in an Alex Jones voice, we can no longer see ourselves. After the great demon sperm event of 2020, <laughs> September 2020, humanity was forced to break or paint over all reflective surfaces and destroy all visual recording devices because they serve as portals between different dimensions. <laughs> all right. Where do you see yourself in five years? Garrett says, wearing a only a thong and a hockey mask, demanding people step away from the gasoline. Oh, he must hang out at Warren Park. <laughs> uh, Chris L. says, someplace worse than hell, yeah. America. Yeah. MGB says, I'll be 40, which is invisible for women, so... Shrug emoji. <laughs> Where do you see yourself in five years? Aaron D says, basking in the glow of finally electing the Cyberdyne Systems Bidenator governing Cyborg to its first term as president. Zach N says, hell, if we aren't already in it. Jeffrey D, our own Jeffy D, says, as a past professional dishwasher in five years, by which time Carrie's Lounge will require a professional dishwasher, I hope to be cashing in the gallery or crashing in the gallery above and living off my UBI. <laughs> All right. A couple more. What? Uh, where do you see yourself in five years? Jeremy T says, sitting right here, finally winning the This Is Hell Internet comment of the day, after which my existence will finally be validated. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's going to be a long five years, but I have some great teachers, and the light at the end of the tunnel is bright. It's going to be a real long five years. Margie says, uh, I don't see myself in five years. <laughs> yeah, and finally, fun. Warren L says, enjoying the 300 websites that the state will allow us to view. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from Hell on tomorrow's show. And again, we will be announcing the winner of a This Is Hell Medical Face Mask Thursday after Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth when Jeff loads 16 tons. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show. Uh, Past guests Maya Shenoir and Victoria Law will be back on to talk about their new book from the New Press, Prison by another name, the harmful consequences of popular reforms. And I hate to ask this again, but do I have that book? Uh, yeah, check your inbox. Okay. <laughs> I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. We're going to get back to listener feedback tomorrow. And like I said, we've got a lot of really good ones. We have one from an Irish collective that needs your help. And we have guest suggestions from all over the world, including one from Dakar, Senegal. So you got to tune in for that. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Cassie Thornton for being on our show. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>